0: This is God's word. Everyone then who hears these words of mine does them and does them will be like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. When the rain fell and the floods came, the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Yeah, it's really great to be with you guys um, this morning. Um, I wonder, if I start with a question, I don't know if you'll start church to answer back, you don't need to answer, so um, it goes either way, doesn't it? But, How can we enjoy a vibrant spiritual life in every season? How can we enjoy a vibrant spiritual life in every season? How can we be sure that we have a faith that will weather the storms? As Dave said, you guys are coming to an end of the Sermon on the Mount. And really the Sermon on the Mount is uh, about what citizens of God's kingdom look like. It's how do we live faithfully in a world as we wait for it to be transformed. And Jesus closes this sermon with perhaps probably the most well-known section of it, the the wise and foolish builder, this this metaphor he uses. And there is a simplicity to it, isn't there? It's not complicated. You don't need to be a builder, I don't think, to understand it. There are two builders. Uh, By the way, we might get some slides up. Um, uh, I... I was known in my previous ministry for using the kind of most cringeworthy images possible. And so you'll, you'll experience that today. Um, but uh, we have this story of two builders, and they're looking to build a new house, and they want a suitable foundation. And so we're told, aren't we? The wise man, uh, the wise builder picks a rock, and the foolish one picks some sand. They're our builders, I told you. But the point is, both build houses, don't they? We're not told what the houses were were like, but maybe both houses looked great. They could have been brilliant houses. But what is it that proves the quality of the houses they build? It's what happens to them in the storm. It's where their foundations are laid. And at this point, maybe you're tempted to sing that famous kids' chorus, but we won't do that. No one wants to hear that from me, certainly. But it goes like this. The house on the rock stands firm and the house on the sand falls flat. That's the one I knew anyway. Maybe uh, we, we see it, don't we? I've got a picture This of it. Lee. This, this is, it made me rethink my, my whole idea of a beach house, because actually, according to this, par- this story, a beach house is a terrible idea. This is actually what happened in t- two houses in North Carolina. A storm came in, and their foundations were swept away, and they ended up in the sea. This is why you don't build your house on the sand. It's a simple story, isn't it? We don't need to be builders to get it. And yet there is something profoundly challenging in it. Are we building our lives on a firm foundation on the rock? And what's particularly challenging about this this sermon that Jesus preaches and this section of it, I think, is who it's addressed to. We might think, we're in the room, We're, we're here in church, of course we're building our foundation on Jesus, aren't we? And I hope so, except this sermon that he preaches is not addressed to kind of unbelievers or just everyone. This is addressed to disciples, people who are already following him, people who are saying, yeah, I'm with you. He's speaking to us who are in church every week. And the question kind of we're faced with is, where is our assurance found? Is it in the foundation or is it in the house that we're building? I wonder... So often if we can turn up on Sunday and everything looks great and we can do all the right things and we can feel really good about ourselves and yet actually, when the storms come, we're confronted with doubts and challenges because we're relying on the house that we've built and not trusting in the foundation. Uh, There's that famous uh, place, the Leaning Tower of Pisa. That's how they give cues. Sorry, sorry, I've forgotten your name. Um, Lindsay has to guess where to change these slides. So, so she needs some applause at the end of this. But. I don't know, has anyone been to, been to the Leaning Tower of Pisa? Have you done the photo thing where you kind of... Yeah. You have, okay. You're those people. Never mind. Um, <laughs> just you. The, the Leaning Tower of Pisa is this beautiful monument, but I don't know if you know this, it wasn't designed to lean. Maybe that's groundbreaking information to some of you. It was built in the 12th century, I think, and it was upright. But over the years, it started to topple. And actually, there have been several times where it's had to be re kind of stood up to less of an angle because it was getting dangerous. Why? Because it's not on a firm foundation. The foundations proved to be unsuitable, to be soft. And I just wonder that maybe sometimes in our lives as Christians, we look a bit like the lean tower of Pisa. There's a tendency that we can everything look beautiful on the outside. But there's a bit of a lean, why? Because our foundations can be all over the place. I wonder how many of us, if we're really honest with ourselves, find that while Sunday by Sunday things can look great, in the week there's a different story. If we're really honest with ourselves, there's all kinds of things we look to to make a foundation. And if we're really honest with ourselves... So often we find ourselves experiencing doubts. See, we love to focus on the quality of the house. Maybe how much we're reading our Bibles, maybe how often we're going to church, maybe how disciplined our life is. But I wonder, is our foundation in the Lord Jesus this morning... How can we be sure that we're building on the right foundation? Where can we have this vibrant spiritual life that is unshakable? Well, listen to Jesus' words. They're so challenging, aren't they? Just close your eyes. I'm going to read them again if that's, if that's okay. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. And I wonder for us as Christians, If we're Christians in this room, it poses a great challenge. Do we hear Jesus' words and do we put them into practice? Do we give, let me put it another way, do we give Jesus total authority in our lives? Are we building our whole lives, not just some of our lives, part of our lives, but our whole lives on the foundation of his words? Or are there other things that we're tempted to build our lives on? You see, we live in a world that offers us endless foundations, but they're all sandy. Some of them are good things, and some of them are great things for building the house, but they're not suitable as foundations. Maybe it's relationships, or approval, or success, or money, or sexuality, or happiness, or comfort, or control, or discipline. There's endless things that we could base our lives on, constantly bombarded with them, We all would love to live on a beautiful house by the sea, but if it's built on sands, then it's not a safe place to be. Well, Jesus says to us this morning, if we want to have a vibrant faith and a a, a faith that will weather the storms, we want to experience kind of a true assurance, then we need to let him rule completely. Well, how do we do that in all these competing voices and uh, offers around us? Well, there's two things in this passage I think we see really clearly, but could easily miss. First, we need to know the one who is speaking. We need to know the one who is speaking. And who is he? He's the perfect king. He's the perfect king. Do you notice verse 24? He says something that well, he doesn't say as often, uh, but here he focuses in. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, these words of mine, and puts them into practice. It's easy to miss, isn't it, if we know the story really well, it's easy to miss, but he says, these words of mine, what Jesus is saying here is so profound, it's, it's outrageous. Why is it so outrageous? Well, the clue is uh, in verse 28, and, he, and, and we see this throughout the Gospels, this response to what he says. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowd were amazed at his teachings. Why? Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. See, what is the difference between Jesus' teaching and the teachers of the law? It's about authority. And it's not that the teachers of the law had no authority. They were well-respected leaders in the community. But what would they teach from? They would look to the Torah, the Old Testament law given to God's people. They would look to the prophets to whom God spoke about himself. They would look to appointed leaders. And they, they all had authority, but it was all deferred authority. It was all second-hand authority. But you see what Jesus is doing here. He's declaring that he's not just a reader of the law. He is the law maker. These words are not just... The very words of God, but he is speaking the very mind of God. These words of mind, Jesus says. As Jesus starts his public ministry, he preaches all about the kingdom of heaven. What's it like and what life as a citizen will look like. That is what the Sermon on the Mount really is. And he says, not only can he tell us what the kingdom is like, but he can describe it because he is the king of that kingdom. Here Jesus is claiming absolute authority. It's no wonder the crowd were surprised and amazed, isn't it? And it's no wonder actually many others were offended and wanted, kind of wanted in debt. It's an outrageous claim. Now, for those of us sitting in church, we might think, well, I know this. So then why do we struggle with it? Why do we, if we know he's our absolute authority, why do we struggle to live for him? And I wonder if part of the problem is we sometimes in our heads have a tension between kind of the God we read of the Old Testament and the Jesus we read of in the New Testament, and we can't quite bring our minds together of a God who is just and uh, and severe and sometimes, but then a God who is loving. We often hold a, a wrong view of who God is. There's a, a book being written in America about the four views of God, and it basically kind of puts God on a spectrum from a, a harsh kind of headmaster, ruler figure to just a smiley guy that doesn't care. We struggle perhaps to, to, to live with Jesus foundation because perhaps we listen too often to the world's different views of what God is like. And we struggle to take him on his own merits there's that famous um, Indian fable. I think there's a picture coming up with lots of an elephant. That's the, that's the clue. You, you maybe you've heard of this. It's very a famous Indian fable. It's about these six blind men encountering an elephant for the first time and trying to figure out uh, and kind of conceptualise it by touching it. So each blind man feels a different part of the ele- ele- elephant, and they all argue about what the elephant is like. One says, "You got it there. He's like a rope." It's like a tree. One says he touches the trunk and says, it's, it's like a snake. Another touches the tusk and says, it's like a spear. And they all argue and they, they, they fall out about it because none of them can accept that the other person's view might be uh, accurate. They, they kind of accuse each other of dishonesty. And in some versions of the fable, they actually come to blows over this, over this discussion. And I wonder, so often, we kind of think, or the world thinks the moral of the parable is that humans have a tendency to claim absolute truth based on their limited subjective experience as they ignore other people's limited subjective experiences, which might be equally quite true. That's kind of what the world thinks. But I think that's a wrong view of it. You know, maybe the world says that the moral is about tolerance and about understanding each other and about accepting whatever people's truth is. You know, we hear this all the time. What is your truth? But I think it all misses the point. A poet, John Godfrey Sack, wrote about this poem. And his, the four, last four lines of the poem read this. Each in his own opinion, exceeding stiff and strong, though each was partly in the right, all were in the wrong. The point is, all these guys trying to conceptualise the elephant's They all get it wrong. They all get it wrong. They may get a little aspect of what the elephant is like, but they all get it wrong in the end. Why? Because they don't have the whole picture. They can't see the whole elephant. And I wonder, so often in our world, is that is what we do with God. We conceptualise in our own minds, we read here and there, and we hold on to aspects, but we dismiss the rest. We don't see the whole picture. The reality is this. If we want to know what God is like, If we want to base our whole lives on him, then we need him to reveal himself to us. If we're going to make Jesus our whole foundation, we need to be sure of who he is. We don't need a Jesus of our own limited imagination, do we? We need a Jesus who is true. We need to know this Jesus of the Gospels. That's the point. We need to know this Jesus who calmed the storms and healed the sick and raised the dead, a Jesus who taught with authority and perfect wisdom, a Jesus who lived a perfect life that we couldn't live of love and justice and peace and truth, a Jesus who willingly went to the cross to demonstrate God's love and justice, coming together as he bears our sin on his shoulders, as he's punished in our place to offer us forgiveness. We need to know the real Jesus because as we know the real Jesus, he shows us who God is. He and the Father are one. That's what he's saying, these words of mine. Let me read this description from Colossians. It's one of my favorite, I'm not sure your loud favorite passage of the Bible, but hey, this is one of my favorite passages of the Bible, that, this is Colossians 1. This is how Paul describes Jesus, just a summary. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on uh, earth, in earth, or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So you see what the gospel offers us? We don't have to guess what Jesus is like. He reveals himself to us, this supreme king, our creator God in human form. And in his death and resurrection, we see displayed all that we need to see as his word is proven true. Thousands upon thousands of people gathered last week, didn't they, to kind of queue up and see the king's coronation. Who watched it on TV? A a few people, yeah. I was too busy fishing, so I, I I couldn't make it, sadly. Um... But, but thousands of people went to see it and tune in. Why? Because it was a, a historical event of great significance. It was, it was worth our attention. And not everyone went to see it in celebration. There was great stories on the news, as in, as in big stories, wasn't there, of protesters and the way they'd been treated, but, but people uh, against the monarchy. But the reality is this. Whether or not we like King Charles, he is the king, Whether or not we like him, he is the king. That is what the coronation proved. And with such, he carries a certain authority. Well, in the gospel, we don't just meet another power, another ruler. We meet a supreme power and a supreme ruler, the supreme power and the supreme ruler, we meet a king whose authority is absolute, and one day every knee will bow, in worship or in judgment. But make no mistake—he is the king. But we need to know that that is good news for us, because he is a king like no other. He is a good king. We sung earlier, a good, good father. He is a king who is true to his words. And that's refreshing in a world of crazy politics, isn't it? He is true to his words, and he works for the good of his people. How can we know? Because he even laid down his life for us. And his call here today is there, isn't it, in verse 24. What are we to do? We're to hear his words, and we're to put it into practice. That is what a wise life looks like. Every year, millions of people would tune in on Christmas Day to to, to watch something. What am I talking about? It's not EastEnders, the other thing that millions of people would tune in to watch. The Queen's speech, the late Queen's speech. In 2021, over 9 million people tuned in, hanging on every word that came out of her mouth. Why? Because they had a respect for her character and authority. They wanted to hear her. As she gave a kind of New Year's hope for the nation. And wonderfully, so often it was full of the gospel, wasn't it? Well, here is the Supreme King, Jesus, speaking about his kingdom. Well, how do we enjoy a firm faith? Well, let me ask you, do you hang on his every word? Do we listen to his voice and do what he says? This is a kind of classic two ways to live, isn't it? There's a few of these in this sermon. We had the narrow road and the broad road here. There's a similar thing there, isn't there? Either we build our house on the rock or we build it on the sand. And there is loads of sand. But there's only one rock. And there is a seriousness to Jesus' words. We see it in kind of the nature of the metaphor. There's an eternal sense to it. We know from the context in Verse 13, he's talking about life and destruction. In verse 23, he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. In verse 19, he talks about kind of bad trick being thrown into fire. There's a, a seriousness to what he's saying. This is about eternity. It's about now, but it's also about eternity. And he says how we respond to his words will show us where our foundation really lies. There's that A famous line from that famous theologian. Uh, Lindsay, you need this slide. Um, Maximus, have you heard of uh, Maximus? This is a famous theologian. Yeah, this guy. No, Maximus in the film Gladiator, before the first battle scene, he says these lines to inspire his troops that finish with this. He says, brothers, what we do in life, I can't do the accent, echoes in eternity. Now, I want to say that's not quite right, is it? That's not kind of where we are theologically, But it's not far off. Jesus is saying here, how we respond to his words now echoes in eternity. What we do with Jesus' words is a matter of life and death. And it's inconsistent for us to say we trust Jesus and yet not put his words into practice. And here Jesus tells us it leads to spiritual disaster. The house on the sand fell with a great crash. The NIV translates it. Or it fell and it had a great fall. I think the SV translation is better. It's hmm? it is better. I know. I'm sorry to bring in an IV. This may be the last time you've ever seen me, um, Yeah. <laughs> it fell with a great crash. If we don't put Jesus' words to practice, it leads to spiritual disaster, both now and the danger is eternal. Well, a good indication of where our foundation lies, according to this metaphor, is. How we respond to the storms. Do you see that? What exposes the houses? It's the storm. How do we respond to pressure? When the pressure's piled on, do we turn to self dependence or we turn to Jesus? When we face tragedy or grief or sadness, do we, do we cling to him or do we feel bitter towards him and hold a grudge? Do we run to him or run away when we're facing temptation? Is there a battle going on or have we just given up and got comfortable with our sin? See, I think the storm is quite exposing, isn't it? It suddenly makes me feel slightly uncomfortable because the reality is we all struggle. We want to say, yes, I trust Jesus. Yes, of course he's the supreme king. And yet we find all kinds of inconsistencies creeping in. Why? Well, I think there's two main reasons we struggle today. The first is this. We want a quick fix. My Instagram feed is full of kind of DIY hacks because, I, because I'm in the trade now. So that's all my Instagram feed. Well, I'm fishing, but mainly the trade. And I know if you follow any of these Instagram hacks, basically Instagram hacks are shortcuts to doing everyday tasks. Whether it, and it can be to do with anything, whether it just be in your everyday house or whether you're doing construction. But what is terrifying about these hacks, and I'm sorry to break this to you if you love these hacks, but most of them are terrible. And actually, quite frankly, when you're in the trade, they're quite unsafe as well. And what's, what's popular now is not only you get the hacks, but you get these experienced tradesmen commenting on the videos going, that's a terrible idea, please don't do it. But why do people do it? Because we love a shortcut. We want to get the job done quicker. We don't want to go for the effort and the cost of doing it the way it should be done. Why do we struggle to put Jesus' words into practice? Why do we struggle, as we, you heard a few weeks ago, to live on the narrow roads? Why do we struggle? Because building on the rock is hard. We just want a nice house by the beach. And so we're tempted to look for the quick fix. We live in a world of quick fixes, a world of instant gratification. Get everything now, it says. Life hacks for the soul. Instead of looking to the experienced master builder and trusting his instruction. That's the first reason we struggle. Second, I think it's because we don't want to give up control. Uh, Since becoming a parent, I've realized I have a terrible problem with control. Why? Because every day, my daughter will show me that I have no control whatsoever. We like the idea of being in control, don't we? And I think for us Christians, we struggle because actually we love the idea of Jesus building the house. We just wish he'd lay it on our foundation. We want a Jesus-shaped house. We want the life that he's offering us, but we just don't want to compromise too much. You may have heard of the famous, I'm not even going to call him a theologian, but famous historical character, Thomas Jefferson, infamous really. Thomas Jefferson came up with his own Bible. He basically got the Bible and he cut out all the bits that he didn't like. Basically, he cut out all the kind of miraculous bits of Jesus because he wanted to turn the Bible into this kind of moral handbook. And it sounds ludicrous, doesn't it, when we think about it? But actually, failing to put Jesus' words into practice is doing exactly that. We're saying, Jesus, look, I want your blessing, but I want to stay in control in some way. Are you happy, you're, I'm happy for you to have Sunday, but as for the rest, I'm not so sure. We struggle with the idea of Jesus' kingship because Jesus being king means that I can't be king or queen. Jesus being in control means that I'm not in control. Jesus being in charge means that I'm not in charge. And that might mean I have to give up something. And so we find it easy to trust Jesus only as far as he agrees with us. It's easy to fall into, isn't it? In fact, it's possible to build an incredible uh, leaning tower of Pisa on completely the wrong site. We need to hear the warning here, don't we? However impressive the building is, however impressive our lives might look, if they're not on... The foundation of jesus and his teaching and his kingship his lordship then when the storms come it will lead to spiritual disaster and one day unless it's rectified spiritual destruction but we also need to hear in these verses there is a wonderful promise to those who hear these words of mine jesus said and put them into practice they are like a wise man who builds his house on the rock, and when the storms come, the house stands for him. This is not salvation by works. We misunderstand the whole Sermon of the Mount if we think this is how we get into the kingdom. This is addressed to those who are already following Jesus. It's not saying obedience produces salvation, but it is saying salvation produces obedience. To listen to Jesus' words and put them into practice is not about us striving on our own to build this big house and say it's on the right foundation, striving to obey, but actually it's about letting go of control and saying, Jesus is Lord. He knows how to run my life far better than I do. And so I'm going to keep in step with the spirits and rely on his grace. As we understand who Jesus is, our eternal saviour, our our eternal king, king of kings and lord of lords, as we see what he's done for us in laying down his life to love us. It's only then that we'll wholeheartedly put our trust in him and relinquish any trust in ourselves to build a good house. It's as we take him at his words. That is, you know, chapter 5, the start of the sermon, that is what it's all about, isn't it? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, those who know they need rescue. Those who know that spiritually, they cannot help themselves, that they have no credit whatsoever. Blessed are those who mourn as we realise that we need rescue and we mourn over our sin as Jesus defines it. And we are called to repent And as we see the ruin that our sin causes, what do we do? We hunger and thirst for righteousness. Because we know Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that his rule is for our good and for his glory. You see, as we understand who Jesus is, as we place our trust in him, as he pours his spirit into us, he empowers us to live a new life. So that when he says to us and puts it into practice, he's not asking us to be self-reliant, he's asking us simply to depend on him more. By the power of the Spirit, live in obedience to him. Because the beautiful news of the Gospel is that we are not having to join a guessing game about who God is, but instead make a decision to trust his revealed character, the person of his Son, with the promise of eternal life. And the wonderful words here are, as we do that, as we hear Jesus' words, as we put them into practice, we'll experience increasingly life with a firm foundation. We'll experience the joy of knowing the one who made us without the niggling doubts all the time. We'll experience increasingly the assurance of knowing that our life is safe in his hands. We'll experience increasingly the peace that surpasses all understanding, knowing that he is in complete control. We'll experience the comfort of knowing that he is working all things for our goods, even the storms, and that they cannot destroy us. Jesus is offering us a vibrant, firm, spiritual life as we take him at his words. The, fam- the well-known kind of uh, English bishop, J.C. Ryle. Uh, he was speaking about this passage and about those who hear Jesus' words and put them into practice, and this is how he describes them. He says, "'In the time of trial,' he's there, "'his religion does not fail him. "'The floods of sickness, sorrow, poverty, "'disappointments, bereavements, "'beat upon him in vain.'" His, he, his, sorry, my, this is my typos— his soul stands unmoved. His faith does not give way. His comforts do not utterly forsake him. What J.C. What Ryle describes, and Jesus, but is the life of the wise builder. As we get to know Jesus, and we trust in his words, and by the power of the Spirit submit ourselves increasingly to his rule, we will experience the joy of a vibrant and secure faith that not only withstands trials but grows in the midst of them as we cling to Christ and the kingdom he's promised to bring so as we finish let's just get practical for a few minutes what do you do with Jesus words do you take them seriously all of them not just the words of the Sermon on the Mount but all of scripture what do we do with this it has this 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 passage has some implications for how we treat his word doesn't it do we hang on every word as if we're listening to the to his speech every time we open the bible do we do we open it or just leave that to sunday do we open it expectant that he's going to speak to us by his spirit do we open it expecting that he wants to change and transform us and, and, and with the humility to say, I'm not right there yet. I need Jesus to work in me still. Do we open it coming to Jesus on his terms as the rightful king? Do we come to church on a Sunday with an expectation that the Spirit will confront and challenge us and encourage and equip us, or are we just waiting for the cup of tea afterwards? Do we leave church with the ambition of reflecting on his word and putting into practice what we've heard, or is it gone by Sunday lunch? I wonder what might it mean for you this week to put his word into practice. And I want to give a few specific examples this story is so practical isn't it Jesus says those who hear my word and put them into practice he's being practical so maybe a few specific examples and maybe this is you maybe not but as as I just tease these out now maybe just be praying where do you need to put Jesus words into practice this week where has there been resistance on your part to do so a few examples maybe this morning. You're here and you're experiencing the inner turmoil of sin in your life that isn't being dealt with. And maybe it's that you can feel the Holy Spirit pointing to something in your heart. He does that, doesn't he? It's always a thing we want not him not to point to. He points at it. And we feel this tension and it comes again and again and again, and suddenly every sermon we hear seems to be about that thing. And we know it's not right. Maybe it's a, a sinful habit or an attitude. What is Jesus saying? Put his word into practice this morning. What will that look like for you? This is not a call to self dependent Stop it. It's a call to a dependence. Jesus, my life is yours. And this area of my life is yours. And I want you to rule completely. Help me to live your way. It's a case of recognising afresh our spiritual poverty and mourning over our sin and hungering and thirsting for righteousness dependent on the power of the Spirit it's a call isn't it to give up control of that bit of your life that you've been holding on to looking for your kind of assurance and your joy and your satisfaction in that, your foundation there instead of Jesus well this morning will you put Jesus' word into practice, will you ask the Spirit to empower you to do whatever it takes to submit to Jesus, even if it means sacrifice or vulnerability, vulnerability or letting go of your pride. Maybe this morning you're full of anxiety. It might, you might not even know what it's about. But maybe you're full of anxiety, just the worries of the world just feel like they're on top of you. And you, you, you're fretting and and it makes you grumpy towards everyone around you i'm not speaking from personal experience honestly you know we we fret we get angry we we just try and get into this manic panic of dealing with stuff on our own instead of turning to jesus who later in matthew says come to me all who are burdened heavy laden and i will give you rest what will it mean for you this morning to put his words into practice He says, come to him, take his yoke upon you, let yourself be bound to him and let him carry your burden. How do we do that? By recognising who he is, by coming to him afresh and remembering that that anxiety that we're feeling doesn't define us and all the stuff that we're worrying about actually in the grand scheme of things probably doesn't really matter. And even if it is important, we can trust Jesus with it so we don't need to fret and don't let that just be a thing that's in your head but let it sit in your heart that Jesus is king and so we can trust him with whatever the things are that make us anxious and know his peace one more example maybe this morning you're weighed down by guilt it's easy to be isn't it maybe this week you just just felt the weight of your own sin but it's but it's crippled you it's Left you in this place where you're barely here. Well done for being here. Well, put Jesus' words into practice. Don't trust in your own righteousness. But find forgiveness at the cross. There is no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. Believe that in your heart. And let him take the weight of guilt from you. And worship him for it. There's a few examples. I wonder... Just in a time of quiet, if that's all right, we've got time. Let's just pause. Where do you need to hear Jesus' words this morning and put them into practice? If you're not sure, why don't you ask the Holy Spirit to, to speak to you over the next 24 hours? Where do you need to hear Jesus' words and put them into practice? Let's just have a time of uh, quiet.